Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. And uh, because Deacon Sabatino introduced him last week, I don't need to, so please welcome back Father Pekorski. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. This will only take an hour. Um, so... We, uh, we should start with a prayer, I think, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, all the angels and saints, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, thanks again for having me, and uh, thanks for coming out on this cold night. Um, we continue with... Uh, a little more technical presentation tonight. Last week was kind of an overview. We discussed uh, how important the Mass is. It's the source and summit of our existence, of our life. It's the end point. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. And if we start treating it as a means to an end, we're making big, big mistakes. And so there has been a, a, a certain emphasis on using the Mass as a means to an end. And it's a tricky business because, of course, you can have a nuptial Mass. You can have a funeral Mass, of course, but even those masses are completion. It's a participation in the heavenly kingdom. Uh, we gave a few examples about how the mass ought not to be used, for example, a graduation ceremony, that sort of thing. Graduation ceremony later or before, but not during the mass. We looked upon how the kind of utilitarian approach to the mass has defaced it. We examined uh, how the vernacular was permitted by the Second Vatican Council, but it wasn't normative. It was normative uh, as of 1969, when Pope Paul VI said that it would be pretty much the normative, not required, but the normative way to celebrate Mass. And, of course, uh, the mixed commission that was put together at that time, actually shortly after 63, 64, about 64, the International Commission on English and the Liturgy, International Commission, was put together to translate the Mass into English. And by and by, we see the Mass uh, provisional texts the final text in 1974, and we're to live happily ever after. Well, didn't happen. By the early 1990s, late 80s, the funeral ritual was retranslated. In fact, it was kind of presented at that time, as I recall, as kind of a brand new text, but it really wasn't. There were a couple of two little scruples in the text, in the original Latin. It's called a typical edition of the text. The funeral liturgy was permitted. Uh, there was a little section there on, as I recall, funerals for children who were unbaptized. I guess uh, one of the prayers was altered for that in the uh, typical edition of the Latin. Uh, but as I recall, the, the ritual when it was brought in was treated as a brand new ritual. It really wasn't. And so we uh, continue with the translation that was presented, or at least was going to be presented at that time for the translation of the Holy Mass. Let me um, just give you a little bit of a rundown of what took place in the 1990s. Uh, how many of you do remember the 1990s? Most of you do. Most of you do. It was a difficult time. I get a sense, of course, I'm kind of isolated, get more insulated, I think, at St. Michael's with the type of parish that we have and the priests that we have and the people. So maybe I'm being nostalgic for the battle days. But there was a, some great difficulty at that time, ideological influence. Do you remember the strong feminist flavor uh, back in those days? Uh, the politics and promotion of the ordination of women, for example, was very, very strong in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the use of a so-called inclusive language. Have you heard of inclusive language? The humankind and all those sorts of things. A strong pressure for that, and pretty much coming from academia. You know, the... Ordinary folks were not particularly interested in inclusive language, but it was emanating from academia. And, of course, a lot of us in the hierarchy, bishops and priests, uh, were probably more influenced by academia than ordinary rank and file in the pews. I think that's just the way it was. 
So there was a, a push, for example, to do away with man. And uh, one very problematic translation that was under consideration at that time of the Mass, and they spent countless hours on this discussion in the Creed where Jesus Christ became incarnate, which is true, and he became truly human. Uh, it's almost like he, an alien from outer space, you know. What is the difficulty with that? What's, if you want to expunge the use of man, that, because that's supposed to be sexist language, what's the difficulty? What do you suspect? The, it's a theological term. Man is a theological term. When you go to Genesis, God created man, male and female, he created them. So man, in the word man, includes male and female, includes a community of persons already. So if Christ became truly human, what happens? It, there's an individualism that takes place. The idea of taking human flesh, taking, uh, bringing on humanity, pushes overboard a, a good deal of theological insight about the unity of and, and the old 1940s and 1950s reaction to socialism and communism comes into play, which is individualism. You'll have the, that tension throughout the 20th century between individualism and excessive communitarianism, as it would be. The Catholic faith has always been a foil to those ideologies. And so now we see ideological influence creeping into the church, into the translation, at least in that false start that took place in the early 1990s. And that creeping ideology was recognized very early on by Pope John Paul II. We'll get into a few of those things as, as time goes on. The guiding principle, let me just give you a couple of the draft translations that were being tossed about back in the early 1990s. This was before the bishops formally considered the translations. Uh, we mentioned about the creed, but here was the Our Father that they were proposing at that time. Again, it was a, a draft. It wasn't a, a formal presentation, but it was one of the early translations that they were putting together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, on earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Again, um, not, not incorrect, not theologically suspect, but what does it do to your sensibilities? Why mess with the Our Father? Huh? Why mess with... And this brings to mind something that the principles, we'll get into this document called Comme le Provo, came out in 1969 as the guiding document for the translation of the Mass back in those days. This brings to mind the expunging of something called the sacral vocabulary. The sacral vocabulary is a vocabulary that Catholics intuitively know because they've used it all their lives. I mean, they speak, old people who've never really think about it, speak like Isaiah the prophet every now and again. They do because their prayers are borrowed by the sacral vocabulary, borrowed from traditional archaic language. So when we use the word trespasses, for example, it's an archaism, but it's not something like forsooth. You know, um, the chasuble of a, of a priest, the priest's vestments are archaic, are they not? If you would take that same sort of ideology of making it relevant, uh, that the vestments of the priest would have to be uh, suit and ties, I would imagine. And in fact, that's what has happened. Matter of fact, uh, back in the 1980s, in, in my file, as I mentioned to you, I remember cutting out a picture, studying liberation theology. Do you know liberation theology? Jeremiah Wright has black liberation theology. The Mary Knoll order was heavily involved with liberation theology. Back then, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger fought mightily against liberation theology. He whimsically said that it, it was supposed to be an indigenous theology. That's how they built it. This is a relevant indigenous theology to Latin America. Of course, you look at it, it's, it's simply Marxist-Leninism. And they've translated the words, salvation is redefined. And by the way, the, the manipulation of words is a serious problem in our culture even to this day. So salvation, if you looked at it closely, they, it was not salvation as we understood it to be. Salvation was defined as the dictatorship of the proletariat. We lost a, 
truly uh, probably hundreds of thousands of, of Catholics in Latin America, South America, because of liberation theology, uh, went off into political activism. And that's a great danger that we all have to be careful. Every priest has to be careful about that. Uh, we're in the business of worshiping God. That's what our faith is. So the, the picture that I have in my file is a picture of a priest celebrating Mass with an AK-47 and his chasuble graced with AK-47 bullets. And it wasn't a make-believe picture. It was the real thing. In other words, there had to be kind of a violent overthrow of the existing social structures. Uh, with that said, of course, politically, certain things did have to change. But the faith, remember, if you listen to St. Paul, he's pretty much praying, we pray for our rulers so that we can worship God in freedom. Uh, that's the reason we want peace in our day, order our days in our peace, as the canon of the Mass tells us. So words do have meaning, and the manipulation of words is, uh, was a great danger, and it continues to be a great danger, and I think we're on the verge of, uh, at least for the Mass, overcoming a good deal of that. The document, Comme le Prava, in 1969, uh, was critiqued by my little organization. I was the scribe for this organization and the administrator for the organization. I was, had the great privilege of sitting listening to some really accomplished scholars uh, argue about the principles of translation and critiquing uh, this document called Comme le Prevent. The critique was published in Catholic World Report back in, I believe, 1996. So if you have that Catholic World Report article, you'll be able to see the critique of this particular document. The flip side was, all right, that's the critique of the document, but what do you suggest should be the principles of translation? What should guide the translator? And make no mistake, translation is not an easy business. Anybody who's in the translation business knows how difficult it is. Uh, did you know that J.R. Tolkien uh, helped in the production of the Jerusalem Bible, uh, in the Old Testament anyway? It requires a good deal of literary talent and maybe kind of harmonizing the end product. So the translation, you could have a word-for-word -word translation that can clunk along, but you need a little bit of gifted writers to put things together without violation of um, the doctrines of the faith. Let me just flip to a couple of my markers. As I was going through my little documents, Monsignor Robert uh, Sokolowski, a friend of mine, wrote an article on inclusive language that was published in L'Azervate Romano. And he explains the problem, and here's what he concludes, this so-called inclusive language. The church is inviting a serious split among its members in regard to both prayer and practice by introducing inclusive language into its liturgical and scriptural texts. This was an article back in Preservatory Romano in March 1993. This was three years after the U.S. bishops and then the NCCB, not the USCCB, but it's called the National Council of Catholic Bishops, put together uh, translation norms on inclusive language, encouraging it. And they said, um, I'll tell you a quick story. I was in a convent, without mentioning where the convent was, I was celebrating Mass. And um, the, um, the prayer came, the Lord be with you and also with you. Um, uh, may the Lord accept the sacrifice, you know, the, for the offertory. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and good of all of his church, right? Well, some of the nuns, with a loud voice, thought that that was sexist because the word his was being used. Uh, and the response was, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of God's name instead of his. And this was explicitly encouraged by, as a translation mechanism by, by, by the then NCCB committee. Uh, so the repetition of God rather than his was encouraged. One of the priests from uh, New Zealand, who was one of the main translators for the texts, said that they were trying to eliminate the use of all male pronouns with reference to God. And they said, sometimes you can't avoid using the word father in the translation of the word pater. Um, but that was the true agenda at that time. And you can see how problematic that is. I mean, you're, you're ripping the whole marital imagery that comes with God's revelation. Because God's revelation, beginning in the Old Testament, kind of coming to kind of a happy foreshadowing of the New Testament, Hosea, 
God, the Father, gazes upon Israel, his church, his communion, uh, as, as a bride. Of course, uh, in Hosea, it's the, it's the bride that is an unfaithful bride, but uh, goes off and ruins herself, and, but God the Father welcomes her back and cleanses her of her sin and restores ancient Israel to the right as his bride, his lovely bride. And so we see in, in the New Testament, Christ, the, the divine bridegroom, referred to as the bridegroom, going out meeting his bride, the church. Indispensable for understanding this marital imagery. And so you can see how valuable is this imagery. Well, the church is a covenant. It's a marriage. It's the model of marriage. So goes marriages, so goes the church, so goes the church, so goes marriage. And so what's happening in our country with marriages these days? Why do you think the church should be as active as she is uh, in promoting marriage? Because the new everlasting covenant depends upon the proper understanding of what the covenant is. The covenant is, is our way of understanding our relationship to Almighty God and to Christ. So uh, we do away with the imagery under the... Um, auspices of or this idea of politically correct, inclusive language, we, we ended up with all sorts of problems. And Monsignor Sokolowski has a splendid article on that. Father Paul Mankowski from the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome also argues over the dangers of inclusive language. And this is a little monograph he put together. I think it's a private monograph. But he quotes Bishop John Sheets. John Sheets is a uh, auxiliary bishop, he's long dead now, but he, he writes this, to come to the particular injustice of what is called sexist language, it is clear that it did not exist a few decades ago, but at present it is a crucial problem. I think it could describe the phenomenon as a shift in perceptions leading to a conflict of perceptions. I would hazard that the vast percentage of men and women do not find it as an issue. Even among those who are conscious of it as an issue, not everyone agrees with the solution simply to abandon the perception of our language, which has been our common heritage from the beginning. And so in, in, in 1993, the U.S. bishops were presented with an ISIL translation of the creed. We mentioned that of homo factus est, which was rendered became truly human. They found this to be unsatisfactory. And so they're asked to consider these inclusive language alternatives and became human, and became a human being, and became one in being with us, and became of one being with us, and took our human nature, and assumed our human nature, and assumed our humanity, and became one of us. In this list, not evidence in and of itself that man has lost the meaning of homo, which is the Latin homo factus est. Uh, the word man was being used in the minds of those who were promoting inclusive language. Uh, man was being used non-generically, but became known as non-females. Uh, whenever man was used elsewhere in the sacred liturgy, because of the ideology, it was considered to be not man, generic man, but precisely male man, <laughs> M-A-L-E, man. Uh, and that accentuated the division. Remember, when we look at a covenant, what is a covenant? It's complementarity. In marriage, it's complementarity of the sexes. And there's unity. God created man, male, and female, he created them. And when that happens, there is that great liberation that comes with being a Christian. So by introducing these things, it became a constant battleground with no end in sight. So even if you would change all these words, and then you ended up with, unfortunately, we have to translate pater as father, guess what happens? Our Father who art in heaven, oh, there's that man again. Uh, it, it even accentuates the maleness of God. Of course, uh, God is neither male nor female, but God uses the metaphor of uh, male and self-revelation. We must honor that revelation throughout uh, our translations and throughout the history of the church. Here is a pretty interesting example of a Genesis. The literal and traditional rendering of Genesis is God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The New Lectionary, however, the Revised New American Bible, which, by the way, if you have the Revised New American Bible, tuck it away as, a, as an artifact of the past. 
and uh, pick up another Bible, maybe the Revised Standard Version uh, that Ignatius Press puts out. God created humankind in his image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, he created them. He writes, there are several departures, problematic on linguistic grounds, from the Hebrew. But there are theological difficulties as well. It was not humankind that created in his image, but man. Humankind is a race or a species. To say that it was the race that God made in his image is to introduce, gratuitously, a number of uncertainties as to whether and how man's resemblance to God is to be found in the collectivity, the abstract, the social, etc. So you see, these things are, it's so easy to toss them aside and say, well, you know, you're making a big deal out of this. But we're dealing with the precision of theological language that we must honor. So um, the fundamental, two fundamental problems with inclusive language, according to Father Mankowski, is this. It is not language. <laughs> it's not language. And two, it fails to include, it leaves out more than it retains. Though less dramatic than a programmatic campaign, the natural organic development of English will provide in due season all the lexical and syntactical tools the speakers are required to communicate. When inclusive language operates as a principle of translation, however, it wrongly subordinates the duty of fidelity to the text to extra textual considerations. The translator, in fact, becomes a censor. That's a great way of putting it. We will not allow any of this language that we think is problematic. One of the things that we talked about briefly last week was the removal from the English translation of certain very important words from the sacred vocabulary that I've been promoting uh, since I began tonight. Uh, the word merit, for example. Well, you know what merit is. At uh, my mother's funeral, uh, there was a relative. She was Lutheran. Uh, my dad was Catholic. And uh, it was a Lutheran funeral, although we had a mass afterwards, secret mass with the family afterwards for her. But a lovely woman who was Lutheran, she was a, a, a generic Protestant that became a Lutheran because of her husband, and she was very devout. And she, I got to write her a letter because I, I, I love my little theological conversations with her. She didn't understand this idea of merit. She said, we can merit nothing. It's all God's grace. And I said, look, I think her name was Lucille. I said, Lucille, look at I give you a gift, and you take that gift and say, thank you very much, Father. And you put it on your mantle, or you, you put it under your bed. Would that be an expression of gratitude if in action, when I wanted that gift to be used by you? She said, no. I said, that's all merit is. Merit is nothing other than using the gifts that God gives us. Of course it's all gift. God gives us many, many gifts. And as Christ tells us in the Bible, we don't put it under a bushel basket. It's the light of Christ. And merit is nothing other than, than using the gifts that God gives us. And so, therefore, we merit the graces that, that come with using, using these gifts. Um, another word that uh, they removed from, uh, substantially removed from the sacred liturgy, was quesimus, the we beseech, we beg. They thought that begging was not really relevant to the modern age. Begging was, is kind of an archaic idea in that right now we can, well, guess what? Is there anything wrong with begging God for anything? Uh, I was reading something the other day about Orson Welles. Do you remember Orson Welles? He was um, kind of an interesting guy, I think, kind of a leftist. Does he pray to God? Was he a believer? Does he pray to God? And he said, I don't pray to God. I don't want to bore him. That is a very tragic view of prayer. Certainly God knows our prayers before we ask. And so when we beg God for, uh, for favors, we are humbling ourselves to him and we're fine-tuning our requests when we ask them. God knows what we need, even before we ask, obviously. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. Because every time we ask, is that my stockbroker? Uh, so... Uh, every time we ask for God for a favor, and we don't see that, that, is, that must be my stock broker. Oh, you turn it off, yeah. So um, the word begging and, and merit are beautiful words. Another word that they didn't like is spirit and soul. So with your spirit is removed, 
Also, the, the, the word soul has been excised from the translations in many, many respects. And the reason for that is they, they thought, gee, we, we're, we're holistic. We don't need to talk about this kind of Greek dualism of a soul. What's the problem with that, of course? Well, God's grace works directly on the soul, doesn't it not? And Christ, somewhere in the Gospels, tells us, do not fear the one who can kill you, kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear rather the one who can condemn the soul to Gehenna. Uh, these words are, are hugely important. And so, for example, the translation, in the present translation, it's about to change. Lord, I am not worthy. How does that go? Lord, I'm not worthy of you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. That's not the, that's not the real translation. What's, what, what is the real translation? Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof but only say the word, and my soul shall be. Dominus and dignus and interest of Tegumem said, Tata be verbos, anapitor anwameam. That's, uh, I say it fast because then I can remember it. If I say it slowly, I, that's from the old Mass. But it's also the, the, the translation from the new Mass. Um, when the bishops were reviewing the translations that were coming through the pipeline, basically, here's how it works. Typical edition of Latin comes to this committee called ISIL. All the little busy beavers get to work and they translate the Latin into English. And as they translate it into English, they have a controlled release. They have draft documents and controlled release to the bishops for consideration. Not only the American bishops, but a whole plethora of English-speaking conferences, Episcopal conferences. They vote on the texts. And when they're happy with the texts, they package everything up, send it to Rome, Congregation of Divine Worship, and the Vatican looks at it, and in the past they typically just rubber stamped it and said if that's what the English speakers want, that's what they get. And that's typically the process. It's a long, in, in, in the 1990s it was a laborious process. They wanted to go a lot more quickly, but it was a lot of sand got into the gears because of the controversies at that time. And the sand, I think, was a good thing. I was kind of happy to see the sand in the gears because it slowed everything down. Uh, the translation was supposed to be uh, with the defects that I mentioned, was supposed to be out in 1995, approved, basta, that was it. Uh, but in fact, it was until 1997 before everything was got to the Episcopal Conference. Eventually it got to Rome, and then it just sat in Rome for years and years and years. Uh, and was eventually formally rejected in the, in the first part of the century. First, I like saying that, first part of the century. I'm just going to flip to this Kamla Pravada to give you some theoretical concepts that they had. Ah, critique of Kamla Pravada. Here it is. Let me just give you a couple of ex examples. In this document that I have, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to skim through it to give you an idea of it. Our scholars went through and they critiqued the text themselves. So uh, let me just give you a quick example here that I highlighted. A, this is Komila Prava. A faithful translation, therefore, cannot be judged on the basis of individual words. The total context of this specific act of communication must be kept in mind, as well as the literary form proper to respective language. That sounds very sophisticated, doesn't it? Well, here's what uh, our people commented. Every speaker of every age, this is our critique of it, every speaker of every age has a passive vocabulary that is considerably larger than his active vocabulary. And every speaker can understand and be inspired by language considerably different in diction and syntax from his own active usage. Consider the contemporary English speakers, the effect of the Gettysburg Address, various speeches of Churchill, and numerous Christmas carols and hymns. You know, four score and seven years ago? Is that, is that the right one? Four scores and seven years ago? Who speaks like that? Yet we all know what that means, right? Uh, it's a literary device that Lincoln used that we all kind of sensed and we knew. And, and the liturgy is like that. You don't have to have a verbose, uh, a, a bunch of words that people understand in a, in a very rationalistic way. Uh, there can be some gaps there in, in our passive vocabulary that we, we grow into. The Christmas carol, uh, Christmas carols that we have. It should be remembered that the language of the Missali Romanum, that is the Roman Missal, and the Liturgy of the Hours represents a Latin that has never the active language of any Roman, but rather is the specifically liturgical indiction, syntax, and rhetorical cursus. 
Consequently, it is wrong to suppose that no text, liturgical or other, can achieve, quote, classical, stop quote, status by embodying images, effects, teachings, and ideas which are valid for people of all times and places. This is patently erroneous, particularly in the case of liturgical texts which are largely based on Holy Scripture. Itself an irreplaceable and unmodifiable inspired text produced in very specific times and places and yet binding for Christians of all times and places. The principle is fundamental to Catholic Orthodoxy that God's inspiration of the Church together with her human cooperation can result in perennial valid doctrines and texts. In other words, you don't have to monkey with the texts all the time to make them relevant. And incidentally, that's what ISIL was promoting at the time. They said, every generation will see a new translation of the Mass. Can you imagine what, what would that do to our faith? It would make, from a phenomenological standpoint, would make the faith very tentative, wouldn't it? One of the uh, phrases, one of the words that I, I noticed uh, in catechesis that has dropped off the radar, not at St. Michael's and not in, not in a lot of our churches, but in the, in the catechetical establishment, is the word transubstantiation. When I was a kid, I learned the word transubstantiation as a second grader, maybe even as, as a first grader. I didn't know what it was. I grew into it, right? You grew into it. The changing of the substance. The substance changes while the accidents remain the same. Uh, and so transubstantiation is an invaluable term. It's, of course, it's a medieval term, uh, the fruit of um, classical theology. But now it's become an indispensable term. And so we sometimes see catechism and say, well, that's too hard for the kids. Too hard for the kids, and they don't understand these things. So let's say the blessing of the bread, a dumbed-down version. What's the problem with that, of course? Is it a blessing? Of course it's a blessing, epiclesis. But it's terribly incomplete, is it, is it not? Um, transubstantiation says it all. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great t-shirt, transubstantiation says it all. So, um, but you see, that's one of the things they would deal away with with these, with these kind of principles of translation. Here is a, another good example. One of the things they didn't like is this, the, the kingship of God. And uh, this is Comme le Prava. Again, it's a, a committee in the Vatican, actually written in French, but ratified by uh, some dicastery as, a, as the uh, means by which uh, we should translate. Uh, Latin terms must be considered in the light of their uses, historical or cultural. This is comme le prova, Christian or liturgical. For example, the early Christians used devotio differ, differs from its use in classical or more modern times. This Latin oratio means in English, not an oration, but a prayer. And this English word bears different meanings, such as a prayer of praise or prayer in general or a prayer of petition. Pious or, or pietas. Uh, are very inadequately rendered in English by pious and piety. In one case, the Latin salus may mean salvation in the theological sense. Elsewhere, it might mean safety or health or as well-being uh, and so on. English uh, by slave or servant or handmaiden. The force of an image or metaphor must be considered whether it is rare or common, living or worn out. This is how we respond, or our group responded. In any language... A given word has a whole range of meanings, and a translator must carefully discern the specific meaning called for in any given context. However, there does exist such a thing as the language of Christian theology and tradition, consecrated in English, or at least since the medieval mystics, Chaucer, the King James Bible, Shakespeare, and the metaphysical poets of the 17th century, in the context of this language. It is apparent to all that flesh and slave do not have the same meaning as the flesh of a cow or a slave on the southern plantation. To be continually looking for a contemporary equivalence and paraphrases not only suspends liturgical language in perpetual limbo of undeniable experimental ideas, the opposite of what liturgy should do, this procedure also fundamentally denies the basis for all expressive language acts, which is an awareness of the right context. Just as the same word does not have the same meaning, connotation or evocation in a poem and in a newspaper article, so too the same word will be understood differently in a liturgical and in a pedestrian context. Furthermore, certain lovely words, handmade, for example, which they, they don't like, but we're making this comment, lovely words like handmade have been consecrated by traditional usage 
and have an exclusively religious meaning, must we look for a secular equivalent simply because a term is considered by some exclusively as religious? The point that these very faithful scholars were, were making is that the liturgy is not to be formed by the culture. The culture should be formed to a large extent by the sacred liturgy. That is the, is the mechanism that is to be used to, to change the culture. And the language of the liturgy is so very, very important in this regard. Uh, again, going back to this 1969 document, this is one of my favorite little interventions here. In the Roman canon, the place of cool refreshment was, was removed in the translation. It makes its uh, reappearance in the new translation. What they say, these metaphors must be changed to keep the true sense because a place of cool refreshment is, according to Nicolai Prevost, doesn't have a true meaning in northern regions. So here's the comment that we put in there. It is professional, and this is, this is uh, I can still see the, the priest who I was taking dictation, kind of spitting out these words in a very erudite way. It is professional pedantry to suppose that a place of cool refreshment will mean the opposite to Scandinavians from what it means to Mediterraneans. There are certain archetypes of the human psyche that are constants, regardless of one's geographical location. Fever and burning feel like fever and burning to no matter where one is, and being delivered from it to a place of cool refreshment would feel like salvation to anyone. It is palacious to exaggerate cultural and geographical differences as if these were ultimately more important than the vast commonalities that unite the human race. Are we to say that the passage from winter to spring has a positive meaning only in northern regions, but that in the south it is a source of discomfort because of the hot summer implies? Both coolness and the springtime are universal archetypes of the human psyche that need not be complicated with abstract theory. He says, since refrigerary is correctly translated refreshment, and since even Eskimos understand the concept of refreshment, this problem is merely a mirage. I love it. Uh, every once when they spit out these things, it uh, works, works well. The good news is that the Holy See, um, Carlo Medina Estevez, uh, took over in the late 90s as the prefect for the Congregation for Divine Worship. And he got these, this translation wars were going on and extended, and the bishops, as I mentioned last week, were completely exhausted by 1996, 1997. In 1997, the whole package was done, and one bishop uh, mentioned, I don't know what we voted on. Do you know what we voted on? I have no idea what we voted on. Archbishop Curtis of, of Omaha, then of Omaha, said in an, in an interview, said, the body of bishops are exhausted. It would be counterproductive to keep arguing this. Because at the time, the Bishops' Committee on Liturgy, the bishops promoting this, kept threatening that all of this is going to result in endless conversation because they kept sourcing Komla Prabha as a principle of translation. That if Komla Prabha says it, that's the way it has to be. Meanwhile, the Holy See was giving little warnings. The Holy Father, John Paul II, said in, in 1993 at, at Limina visit to some, uh, I, think, I think, some Western bishops, he said, translations, your translations, should be accurate, authentically representing the, the meaning, I'm paraphrasing, I'm using Eisel's approach. Uh, but then he said, uh, for the full grandeur of the faith to be known, and it should be free, and this is his actual words, free from ideological influences. And so that was 1990, so the, the drumbeat was set out there. And then, of course, uh, Cardinal Medina, in an interview, said he's looked at some of these translations, and they're fantasies. They cannot be uh, found in the texts. One of the inventions that they had in, in the final product were certain pastoral notes that ISIL presumed to include. So they would say, for example, that it's appropriate for small groups to stand around the altar during the Eucharistic prayer. Nowhere in the Latin, nowhere in our practice do we have anything like that. They use this as a vehicle, again, to lard over the translation with all sorts of pastoral practices that have no bearing on the typical edition of the Latin. And so the Holy See was making some warnings. On a parallel way, the provisional ordinational ritual, which was provisional since the 1970s, 
had been retranslated by ISIL. Now, the ordination ritual uh, pretty much coincides with the sacramentary, although they're separate, separate documents. The Vatican, I believe it was 1997, I checked my notes, but 97 rejected the ordination ritual. It was, it was uh, uh, for those of us who had, had ears to hear, it was uh, a shot heard around the world. Because if that ordination ritual was, was killed, that meant that the Holy See was on to these difficulties, and the Holy See would eventually move against these difficulties. Our little group put together a translation uh, or principles of translation, and we put this thing together in 1996. And of course, this big package that I told you that I'd read from over the next hour, uh, this whole big package, which is documentation, raw admin work, I'm a good admin type, raw admin work, raw material, sent to the Vatican, and, and by and by, Liturgium Authenticum was released. Have you heard about Liturgium Authenticum? Liturgium Authenticum is new principles of translation completely replaced Quam Le Prevois, completely replaced the document, and basically insisted upon accurate translations of the Mass and of the Sacred Liturgy, down to examples like Et Cum Spiritu Tuo. And I did a little research, did it, I, I did a Catholic World Report article, maybe it was a little kind of a victory lap at the time. I looked at our principles of translation, and I married them up to Liturgium Authenticum, Picture perfect, mirror image. There are words, of course, the Holy See's words, but it was clear that we had a, a piece of the pie that, that hit home and was used by the Holy Father, by the Stochastry, and by the Holy Father to redefine the translation of the Mass and the Sacred Liturgy. The other thing that they insisted upon was the ISIL statutes needed to be revised. ISIL, the statutes and, and the governing body, had to be reconstructed uh, in accordance with this Liturgium Authenticum. And that caused a great shake-up in the organization. And guess what? By 1985, we were getting good translations. So much so that Bishop Ruskowitz wrote uh, during an intervention when he was giving a package of translations. Uh, they still had some problematic translations, like colleagues, that is to say, chalice, was being translated as cup. Uh, and Bishop Ruskowitz repeatedly during his interventions said cups are for coffee. It should be translated as chalice. And so now you see chalice making its way back into the sacred liturgy come Advent. Another uh, observation he made at the time was, uh, was kind of funny, I thought. He said, ISIL has ceased being a weapon of mass destruction <laughs> with these new translations. So now we have these new translations and we hope to live happily ever after. Let me just take a look at some of the principal parts of the Mass that are going to affect you. And you know how the Gloria goes, right? Let's, let's take a look at the Act of Contrition. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Isn't that lovely? Um, that's an accurate translation. The Gloria. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory. Lord God, Heavenly King, O God, Almighty Father, Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of, by the way, that's plural. Have you noticed that? You take away the sins of the world. Back in the translation days, one of the little heresies that was floating around is that the sin, there's sin of the world, like we have a big sin out there. And that's not multiple, but it, it's, uh, it, the actual Latin peccata was, was in the plural. So now that plural is, is reintroduced. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now, the Nicene Creed, you remember how the Nicene Creed, we had all those variations, and how we wrung our hands to make sure that we wouldn't be offensive to ideological sensibilities? I believe in one God. Wait a minute, what happened to we believe? Credo means I believe. So we're back to I believe in one God. I can speak for myself, right? I can't speak for you. 
I can speak for myself, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, him, all things were made. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven and became man. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so on, and so on. The creed now has, is uh, a beautiful translation. Communion rite. This is the Lamb of God. Kind of a pedestrian. Ecce day. What does Ecce day mean? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? Not this is the Lamb of God who takes... I mean, there's nothing theologically wrong with it, but it's pedestrian. Now we re regain and retain. Uh, and what's the response? Lord, I'm not... Yeah. Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. What do we regain there? We, we get the, the scriptural metaphor, don't we? Uh, otherwise, we don't have that scriptural metaphor. Under my roof is what the centurion said. And my soul shall be healed. Again, we're begging God to heal our soul. We become more, uh, uh, more spiritual on these things. So uh, it's really an exciting time. I think the, uh, the translation uh, is, again, there will be some priests who, who clunk along. We'll have difficulty and we'll stumble over our words because I think we've been all isolized in the past. Uh, we need to be de-iced uh, as we learn the new translation. So expect a little bit of clumsiness here and there. But, um, and you, you yourselves will revert to maybe the old ways every now and again. Uh, but I think it's going to be a lot easier than people think. And I think it's going to be uh, a very refreshing time, an exciting time. I'll be able to preach the Mass. Uh, in the past, I, frankly, I, if you say, All right, here's, the English says this, the Latin says this, but here's the real translation, there's something lost in, in, the, in, you know, in homiletics when, when you have to go through that, those iterations. So now we can say, this is what being said. The Roman canon is beautiful. I don't have it here with me. The Roman canon is beautiful. It's an accurate translation and a good translation. Uh, we have this a splendid chalice, I or um, glorious chalice, I think it's called, or uh, preclarum is translated. The word chalice is, is reinstated. I think cup is in there every once in a while, but during the consecration itself, the word chalice makes its, makes its entry. So Bishop Ruskowitz convinced them that, that uh, cups are for coffee. Um, and the chalices belong in the Mass. Uh, and as I say, it's an exciting time, and I, th I think I've uh, worn you out by all of this, so I thank you for your attention, appreciate your, your devotion, and appreciate your, your interest. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Father. I do also want to just say to y'all, if y'all can say a prayer tonight for our speakers, because... They're the lifeblood of the Institute, and we would not be where we are today without them and without their expertise. And it, it means a lot to me, and I'm sure to all of y'all, uh, to know that we have uh, priests from our diocese and Christendom College professors and even a bishop now coming to speak for us. So anyway, that's your task for this evening. All right, let's break, and we'll come back in a couple minutes. Thank you all. All right, um, let's get started. Here you go. Father, why do we still say that God is maker of heaven and earth and not creator? Could, couldn't that have been changed to... Well, again, you're, 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 you're arguing um, the, the whole difficulty of translation. Um, when you go vernacular, you never satisfy everybody. It's very, very difficult. I was talking to Bishop Ruskowitz about this, and he said, this is really, in the history of the church, this is really something rather new. Everything's got to be translated for the liturgy. And what happens is that you end up with kind of ceaseless quibbles. I mean, we're trying to reduce the number of theological quibbles in a lot of these things. And I think we've been successful. I mean, the Holy See has been successful in, with Vox Clara, uh, that organization I didn't mention, but that was a little team in the Vatican that was kind of the clearinghouse for the translations. 
as they were coming through the Holy See. So to say maker rather than creator, I, I think, uh, is uh, an interesting and valid observation. But uh, the, only, only the point that translations will never be up to what we think they ought to be. Somebody might say, no, we should, maker makes a lot, more, a lot more sense. But I don't think maker was, was, uh, was a dumbed-down version in the translation. That wasn't to be relevant or anything like that. Yeah. Yes, please. Father, can you just remind us uh, who authored Comme le Prévois? And two, the second part is, when are you going to write the book? <laughs> well, Helen Hitchcock should write the book. She's the one who's the, the expert. I was suggested that she come and give a talk. She's, uh, she runs Adorama. She's the editor. But, and incidentally, I, I was supposed to have a bunch of Adorama's bulletins today. And one thing I'll say about Helen Hitchcock, she doesn't make mistakes. She is a scrupulous editor, and she's erratic. She's not a bomb thrower. I mean, I, I throw my bombs every now and again. She's not. Uh, she's, uh, she's very professional and very reliable. And if you ever want to have a letter to the editor, write at her Amos, and they'll take it seriously. And you might even have it published. She wrote a book here. I, I didn't bring it with me. The Politics of Prayer. Ignatius Press has it. So Helen, I'm, I'm going to encourage Helen to write the book. Oh, Kamala Prava, uh, I think it was a concilium. It was a, 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 a yeah, concilium. And it was, um, I'm not exactly sure if that's, the, I think it was the organization that wrote it. I'm quite confident that it is. But it was a, it ratified by the Holy See as being the principles of translation back in 1969. There was a question. Yes. Yes, well, I was going to ask if you were going to put in a plug for Adoramus. Uh, we've been subscribers for years. It's, it's a great publication. I, I really recommend it to everyone. Uh, but since you've already kind of <laughs> mentioned it, uh, I would proceed to ask uh, uh, how, how it went that far in this country. Uh, in other words, uh, in, in the English-speaking world, we got a worse translation than was done in the other countries. And uh, somehow I feel like the, the acceptance of this had to have been driven by the ground being prepared for people just to simply take something that was not correct and, and was following the social agenda rather than following the first commandment. Yeah, it's, it's a, discerning the, the motives is always a difficult thing. I do would point out that when Carlo Medina kind of put the gauntlet down that the translations ought to be good and, and he um, itemized why the ordination ritual was not going to be accepted and in it he comes close to describing the letter was pretty hard-hitting, and in it he didn't mince any words. I can't find it. I, can, I did find uh, some of the credo observations in general. Isil blurs the distinction between the priest and the laity. They're referring to the priest as a presbyter, for example, which is a functional term. In the early church, they referred to priests as presbyters to distinguish them from the Levitical priest or the priesthood in the Old Testament and the Jewish priesthood. But then priest became the term of choice and the ordination of priests was considered. So presider and presbyter and all those sorts of things went by the, a presider was never used, but presbyter went off to the dustbin and replaced by priest eventually because the priesthood then of Jesus Christ and the priest's participation in the priesthood of Jesus Christ was accentuated. But Isil wanted to return to words like presbyter or presider. Now we do say that the priest presides at Mass or the celebrant that presides, but nowhere in the Vatican documents that I've seen has the priest been referred to as a presider? Cardinal Ratzinger writes about presider as being uh, a functional, kind of a non-sacramental term. Other criticisms that we made is ISIL seems to promote the feminist agenda in areas of doctrine. We talked a little bit about that. ISIL desacralizes much of the mass translation. We talked about desacralization. Um, we, we, uh, and there's all sorts of examples here. ISIL often neglects the splendor of the Mass and sometimes unnecessarily embellishes it with kind of Asiatic, in an Asiatic way. Uh, ISIL is inattentive to the nuances of Catholic theology. Um, Promultis, for example, that great controversy that took place, for many has, has made it way back into the liturgical translation. Uh, Father, do you envision this more disciplined retranslation of the Missal uh, having a an effect on the lyrics that we sing during Mass and the church music in general? I hope so. I, 
you know, predicting the future is a difficult thing. I know that it takes priests and bishops to be interested in these things, and interest is sometimes hard to cultivate. I know Bishop Laverde is an interest in this. He's very attentive to making sure we do this right. And so I'm very happy with what's going on in the Diocese of Arlington. I know at St. Michael's, we want to get the music program down. You're looking at somebody who's kind of low church, myself. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm a businessman by uh, vocation before I became a priest. And so I'm not, uh, I'm an unlikely guy to be involved with liturgy as much as I have been. But uh, I think there's uh, I have some great hope that we will make progress in that area. Yeah, music is a huge huge difficulty in the church today. And getting people to sing is another, another bit, huge difficulty. Why did it take so long, 15 years, before we actually got a good translation? Why are we so slow? Well, uh, I think the point that we're kind of making is that if it went fast, it means that we would lose. And if it went slow, it meant that we had some breathing room and that maybe the Holy See would intervene, which the Holy See did with Vox Clara and um, the Pope himself, to make sure that we had a decent translation, a good translation. And that's what happened. So I'm grateful that it took, well, I'm grateful it took as long as it did in view of the difficulties that we had, the massive, I mean, we're just voices in the wilderness back in the 1990s. I mentioned, I promise you won't tell anybody, I mentioned to some priest friends, uh, I said, it feels strange to be in the mainstream of the church. <laughs> I've never been that, never felt that way before. Um, but this is a mainstream translation, and it's an accurate translation, it's a good translation. But why it took so long? Well, I think it's better that it did rather than not, under the circumstances. Father, who was behind the uh, movement of the tabernacle and the churches, even to the extent that it even moved the tabernacle down the street in some churches? They would point to the great cathedrals and the basilicas like St. Peter's and say it was off to the side, but St. Peter's is a kind of a functional thing, right? I mean, the altar was on top of where St. Peter was buried and the, a big tourist area, I mean, people coming and going, that the Blessed Sacrament was off to the side so that true worship could take place. But uh, uh, the Holy See uh, is promoting the tabernacle back in the middle. I know Bishop Keating used to say that at the cathedral, you know, it's off to the side rather than the back. And... He's the only one that gave me kind of a persuasive argument as to why it's off to the side. He said he didn't feel comfortable with his back towards the Blessed Sacrament. <laughs> Which, why that all took place, uh, you know, we've had a crisis in the understanding of what the real presence is uh, amongst priests. And that's the source of who we are, is the, is the real presence. And that crisis is not over yet, but we're, I think we're making progress. The younger priests, I believe it or not, I mean, Gosh, I kind of feel like Charlie Curran every once in a while with the, some of the younger priests coming up. So you probably don't remember Charlie Curran. Father, would you tell us about how this work of translation has been reflected in other languages? I think I mentioned last week, either privately or during the talk, that the reason it's a bad translation or a difficult translation, I shouldn't say a bad translation, it was, it was an adequate translation. We had, we had celebration of the Mass, reverent Masses, possible in the old translation, uh, that was never uh, a question of that, uh, but didn't have the full theological import and, and, uh, and the meaning that we would have preferred. But that translation based on those principles, those faulty principles, in English became the basis for other language groups, particularly in Africa, maybe even in Asia, because their access to the Latin was through the English. So this became a, I think the Holy See had to recognize this part. This was one of the little secret things, I shouldn't say secret, in, in a conspiratorial way, but I think this is one of the reasons why the Holy See was particularly interested in, in the English, because it became the basis for translation in other language groups. Now, insofar as the other groups, I think Spanish, the Spanish translation was pretty good from the get-go. I can't speak to the German. I think the German had some difficulties, and I think the French might have had some difficulties as well. But I venture to say that the English probably had the most difficulties. Uh, but that's, I could be proven wrong based on my, if I talk to my scholars who know more than I do on the language groups, I mentioned I'm a businessman. They would have more important or more credible things to say about that. Thank you very much, Father Pekorsky. And we'll look forward to see all of y'all on November 8th.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.